From the studios of the Private Client Network in Midtown Manhattan, welcome to Luxury on Location. This dynamic podcast features conversations with luxury realtor Kevin Snedden, founder of the Private Client Network at Compass, and his Private Client Network partners. In this, our sixth episode of Season 2, Kevin will be speaking with Evan Wyman, our Private Client Network partner in Seattle. Evan is a top luxury real estate broker in Seattle, and here's why. A lifelong Seattle resident, Evan has become a recognized expert in the urban Seattle luxury market. He has achieved great success through understanding the emotions his clients experience during the process of buying or selling a home. The vast majority of his business is referred and repeat clients, which is a testament to his ethical approach and overall track record of success. And in case anyone's counting, Evan has brokered over $700 million in real estate sales during his career over $92 million in 2021 alone. What we admire most about Evan is his quick wit, his intuition, and his overall positive outlook. We are so fortunate to have Evan in our private client network, and we are delighted to have him as our featured guest on Luxury on Location. Hello, Evan. Hello, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. Welcome to Luxury on Location. I'm looking forward to it. My first podcast. Oh, really? Well, yeah. I promise you're going to enjoy it. <laughs> so for the benefit of our listeners, can you take everyone through your background, professional background, and your history with Seattle? Sure. I was born and raised in Seattle. I went to college in Colorado, came back afterwards, and I had about four or five jobs before real estate. I worked for the Seattle Mariners, the Seattle Supersonics, Nordstrom, kind of all the hometown teams. And then at 26 years old, I started seeing my peers buy their first homes or start getting married and having kids. And I saw an opportunity with, I think at that point, most of the agents, the realtors around Seattle were generally a different generation than us. They were a little older. So I saw an opportunity to jump in with my friends and peers on their first home and kind of grow with them as they grow their family, change their job. And so I started at 26 and it's been 24 years, I guess that's been since I started. And I went to a small company for about three months in Seattle. It was tiny. It was probably five or six agents. Wasn't a great fit. Went to a larger company in Seattle with a great training program and spent, I don't know, about 15 years there. And then in 2016, six of us left and started a company called Avenue Properties. And we left where we were before and had Avenue for two years. Our strength was our marketing, grew our company 200 agents over those two years. And then in 2018, sold to Compass. So we joined Compass then and have been there ever since and are loving it. That's really interesting that you guys built up a business and then sold it to Compass. So how was that experience dealing with selling something that you guys built and then transitioning into a larger brokerage like Compass? Yeah, that's a great question. So to be honest, we weren't planning to sell that quickly. I mean, I think the long-term goal was to sell the company and grow it and sell it. But when they approached us, Robert came to Seattle and met with the six of us. We were hesitant because it was early, but we discussed it, realized who else would we sell to? There were other companies that were probably options down the road. But if we said no to Compass at that point, would there be an opportunity down the road? So we ended up 
taking the jump. All transitions are hard. I think we only lost one agent in that transition, which was great. So everyone was pretty loyal and followed us to Compass. Again, it was the first few months. They were new to Seattle. They were expanding quickly. It was a little bit bumpy, but it has smoothed out and it's been a great move for us because the Compass tools, the Compass marketing, everything has been seamless since then. Yeah, what's interesting is Seattle's the ultimate tech hub and for Compass being a tech-enabled brokerage with an operation in Seattle with a bunch of engineers to acquire a Seattle firm to sort of jumpstart market share was critical for Compass. So that's really interesting that you were involved in that. It's a great place to be, Seattle, for technology. We've got Amazon, Google, Expedia, Facebook. We've got all sorts of tech companies there. And so it was a good fit. And I'm sure they had a, hopefully an easier time recruiting their the engineers when they were hiring because of the talent pool in Seattle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So can you take us through the overall Seattle real estate market, including what's trending lately? Sure. So let me first explain Seattle. So I think when people outside Seattle refer to Seattle, they're talking of the greater Seattle area. So Seattle, which to me is the city of Seattle divided by Lake Washington, which is about a mile and a half across. There are two bridges. In fact, I realized this morning that the Evergreen Point floating bridge is the longest floating bridge in the world. Over to Bellevue, what I call the east side. So Bellevue, Kirkland, Hunts Point, Arrow Point, Medina, and Mercer Island. So that's kind of the general overall market for the Seattle area. The volume of business in Seattle in September of 2021 was 13 billion. And in 22, we're down to 11.8 billion, so down 9%. Seattle on the east side generally trend the same. We're just different price points. So the average sale price in Seattle this last September let me tell you, it was $812,000. And on the east side, it was $1.2 million, both up 6% year over year, but just different price points. Medina, which is where Bill Gates, Steve Ballmer, Jeff Bezos all live, is ranked as the 10th most expensive zip code in the U.S. around Los Altos and Santa Barbara and places like that. So that really does push up the average price on the east side. But Listings, inventory for the Seattle area are up 98% from one year ago. So a ton of inventory coming in the market here. And sales are down 32%. Again, the medium sale price was up just over 6% for the area. And our days on market is up to 27 days from a year ago. So more inventory. It feels like more of a normal market. The last two years were crazy. People may think the sky is falling given the temperament of the market, but I think it's more of a normal market. Houses don't sell in a week normally, and they don't get 8, 10 offers normally. So we're back to a normal market where it may take longer to sell. Now, that being said, I think rates are affecting everybody. That may put some pressure on pricing down the road. But right now, we're still seeing an increase year over year. Well, what's interesting to me is you're exactly right when you say the market's normalizing. And one way to show that to clients is just compare 2022 over 2019. <laughs> exactly. Right. So you could say that 2020, 2021 were markets were almost artificial because there were so many forces at play and, and you were in an extreme environment. And so to compare 2022 to 2021 is, is just not fair. Right. Right. I mean, you look back, yeah, two, three, even four years, we're still way ahead on terms of value, in terms of transactions, in terms of dollar volume than we were 
three or four years ago. So how do people make the decision as to where to locate in Seattle? I imagine price point has something to do with it, proximity to work might have something to do with it, and maybe the lifestyle that they want to lead, generally like urban versus suburban. So how do people decide where they want to be within the greater Seattle area? Yeah, that's a great question. Of note, we're still getting buyers coming from California. That's our biggest feeder market to Seattle. And what they look at, again, the east side is a much higher price point. I think the east side had 255 sales over $5 million in the past two years. 39 were over $10 million. In Seattle, there were 50 over $5 million and only seven over $10 million. So more affordable homes generally are in Seattle. And part of the reason that is, is there are smaller lots on the east side. There are larger lots, waterfront. There's waterfront on both sides, but more waterfront on the east side. Some of the factors they talk about when moving here are schools. The east side has really great public schools. Seattle has decent public schools. They lag a bit behind Bellevue, but not awful. They also have great private schools in Seattle too. So schooling is one of the factors. Of course, like I said, value is one of the factors. And then if you have kids, either Seattle inside is great for kids. They both have great parks. They've got sports programs, schools. There's probably more selection for public schools on the east side. But so I would say that Seattle has more light nightlife than Bellevue as far as they have more eclectic restaurants. They've got a nightlife scene. Many neighborhoods have a great town center. Where I live in Madison Park, we're close to the lake. We've got Starbucks. We've got restaurants there. So people really look to be able to walk to the town centers in different neighborhoods. So that's definitely a factor. And then public transportation. They are building out the public transportation with light rail which will take two, three more years, I think, but easy access to downtown. The challenge is that those who work in more of the service industry can't afford to live in the city. And it's probably the same with cities all across the country. So they're commuting north-south normally from north of Seattle to south of Seattle on public transportation or just have long drives So it's because it's more affordable to live farther away. Again, it's the same issue with any large city. So if you're a young professional, where do you want to live in Seattle? If you're a young professional with no kids, you're probably going to be on Capitol Hill, uh, which is a mile from downtown, or Ballard. You could be in Wallingford, Fremont. All those neighborhoods have great hubs where there's a brewery and a great restaurant, a coffee shop. Well, in Seattle, there's 10 coffee shops. But uh, there's a lot of the amenities there that you can walk to, and you have your young professional peers around. So we all know that people moved from areas like California to Seattle during COVID. How about within Seattle? Did people make moves for COVID-related reasons within the Seattle area? Yes. When COVID hit first, there was a great migration, it felt like, from Seattle to neighborhoods out east. So Snoqualmie, which is a half hour from Seattle, Issaquah, a little closer, but the Snoqualmie area had a huge, really big influx of people from Seattle and their prices went bananas through the roof. So that, you know, working from home made it easy. Not having to commute downtown was easy. I will say the downtown area where the condos are is still a bit slow. Seattle was tough downtown during COVID. There was homeless issues. Those are being cleaned up. Seattle's now back to where it was before 
the downtown area is more full, more vibrant, restaurants are open. But that time was tough, that year, year and a half, two years, people left and they went east towards Snoqualmie, Issaquah, Bellevue, left the city. But it feels like it's rebounding pretty well right now. So how about the luxury market, which is always in a town like Seattle, it's just got to be lifted by the tech crowd. So how has that been recently? I'm talking, say, 10 million plus. Recently, in the last few months? Yeah. Yeah, it's quieter than it was, to put it mildly. I mean, we have a listing, it's only three and a half million, but we would have sold this listing 10 times six months ago, and it's still in the market two months later. And we've lowered the price. Showing activity has quieted down, and transactions have gone down as well. Is that across the board, or is this really in in the... That's across the board, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the markets are all recalibrating now. So there's, you know, the buyers jump on the sidelines and then the lower price points, those buyers are very price sensitive as it relates to interest rates. And then the higher end buyers, it's really the optics of it from like a consumer confidence perspective. So it's really, yeah, it's really interesting. So what you're experiencing in Seattle, we're seeing in New York and our PCN partners are seeing that in Chicago and other places. So it's interesting. We get asked all the time, I'm sure you do too, about what's the market going to do. And I wish I had a crystal ball because I'd be a really rich person if I had a crystal ball right now. But they're happy being patient. And who knows if they're right or wrong. The rates could stay where they are and the market could stay where it is. But people just are willing to be patient right now. But it also creates opportunities for buyers. I mean, if a buyer wants to buy, there are opportunities out there. You know, and a, and a seller that wants to sell needs to make sure that they really stage the home, get it spit shined and ready for market because there is, as we saw from the stats, 98% inventory from year over year. There's other competition. So you have to be priced based on not six months ago, maybe two weeks ago, or the comps have sold a month ago versus a six months ago. You can't shoot for the stars in your price. You've got to, again, stage, paint, get it ready, get great photos and market it properly, because otherwise it's going to sit there on the market for a bit. Yeah, that's the most difficult part of our job is when a market transitions to condition a seller or a buyer to that change in the market. (laughs) It's a hard job. Yeah. And it's hard for them because you have to also compare, but like we said a minute ago, you need to compare them, show them that three years ago, your house is still way higher in value than it was three years ago. It's just not where it was maybe a year ago. Yeah. Or six months no, ago. Agreed. Agreed. So why don't you take us through your business in Seattle, how you operate it, what differentiates you from your competition, all those things that are unique to your business? Sure. So I have a team of five. I have myself, another principal. We have a client services manager, a transaction coordinator, and a marketing coordinator. We also have a team in Idaho. So we work in Sun Valley, Idaho, because a lot of people in Idaho and Seattle have homes or visit Sun Valley a lot. So we saw an opportunity right when COVID hit, actually, to get licensed in Idaho. There's a Compass office here. Join that office as well. So two or three of us on that team are able to work in Idaho as well. So the team of five did $92 million in 2021. We generally sell homes. Our average is around... Two five two seven depends on the year. So our highest sale last year was a house for five point eight million dollars on Mercer Island, which is on the east side in Seattle. It was a really neat concrete glass steel view home designed by Olson Kundig, who's a pretty well known Seattle architect. 
or actually nationally renowned architect and with views, just amazing views south to Mount, Mount Rainier. We just closed a sale last week in Sun Valley for $6.5 million, which is our biggest sale here to date, which is great. What we were good at Avenue Properties, the company we started with those, the six founders, including myself, was marketing. So I still believe in print marketing. Obviously, we do social media. Oh, I'm too old for that. I have my assistant do it. But And networking. When I was starting the business 22 years ago, you're not very busy as a new agent. So all I did for the first couple of years was go to Brokers Opens, learn the market, and shake hands and meet other realtors. So playing nice in the sandbox with agents over time makes deals easier to happen when easier to put together. When you're putting a deal together, again, if there's five offers or one offer, the agent knows who you are. They know the deal will be easy or, you know, it'll be a smooth transaction. Ideally, there's always hiccups, of course, but that's kind of, you know, networking, marketing. And then our client services manager, we met a client yesterday in Seattle to do a walkthrough just hand us the keys. Like, here's our list of things to do before we list. We'll take care of it all for you. Don't worry about it. Come back when it's sold, pick up your keys or drop off your keys and we'll be done. We try to make the transaction or the sale process as smooth as possible by doing things they don't want to deal with. Yeah, it's clear. You put some, just for you and another principal, you put three staff to create a service level that's going to be unparalleled. Again, you know, if you compare that to who you're competing with. Yeah, thank you. And I, it, it's also important just the, the networking and the market knowledge. The new agents that we talk to, for me, the most important thing for a new realtor is to tour. And nobody, it feels like no one tours anymore. The brokers opens. That's so when you're, you know, when you're talking to a person you meet at the coffee shop at Starbucks or, or wherever you are, and they ask you about oh, that house down the street, you've actually been through it. And you can speak with knowledge about what you're talking about. So they, they believe in you. So you know, touring is a key for both all of our team. I make everyone, even the transaction person, tour so they know the market. Yeah, you know, whether you're talking about playing golf or other sports or business, it's the fundamentals. And your point about, I always tell people in this business, job number one is to learn the inventory. <laughs> job number two, Absolutely. right, is to to build relationships in the trade community, which is other realtors, where yeah. some people see other realtors as competition and they almost want to alienate themselves from other realtors, you have to see them as collaborators. And you are really smart with that approach, you know, learn the inventory network with the broker community because brokers do like doing deals with other brokers that they know and trust and get along with. And they want that experience to be pleasurable. And they sort of shy away from brokers that they don't, they know it won't be a pleasurable experience. Just be nice. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> the, that's the motto, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Pretty simple. Wow. So that that's interesting. And the fundamentals and the service level and it's sort of our whole private client brand and our network is that we can, you know, if someone comes to us and wants to buy three houses in three locations, we can do that. And so we've elevated the service level, but our everyone in this network is like-minded in the fact that they put the clients first and that they want to just uh, exceed expectations from a customer service perspective. And you're clearly doing that on your team. Yeah, thank you. It is. I mean, I've only been, I think, for what, maybe a year in the private client network, but it's that retreat we had in Chicago. Was, it's a really great group. And like you said, like-minded people who really want to, who have no problem sending their client to you or whoever, someone in Miami or 
and Matt in Jackson Hole. Like there, it's just, it makes things easy and you don't worry about when you hand off the client to someone because you know, again, they're of like mind. Yeah, and we've built trust across the network. So that's a good point you made. So I trust if I send a client to you, I trust they're going to get handled and they're going to be happy and and, uh, and I'm out of it at that point. Yeah. And I have that trust with you. And that's what it's about versus saying, hey, I think I know someone in Seattle I can connect you with. There's no trust there and you don't know what's going to happen with your client. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Anything else you want to tell us about the way you guys run your business and what's the tried and true and in terms of getting a listing sold or negotiating for a buyer? Do you have anything that you guys do that you feel you do better than others or things that just work for you? I mean, I think honestly, just with negotiations, it's just honest communication, open communication and no surprises. Setting expectations up front with clients that this will likely happen or the offer you're making is probably a long shot, but we're going to do our best to get it done. But I think even just with my kids, it's the same rule. Set expectations up front so no one's disappointed. And I think that's super key in, in, well, in life. But I think with this business and negotiating and, and talking to clients, I mean, we did tell the client we met yesterday for the house we made a list in Seattle that the market's tough. Here are the expectations. It might take three months. You might need to come down on your price a little bit. We have to get the house dialed in. That's true. You know, a lot of people in this business overpromise, certainly to get a listing, whether that's taking yeah. it at a, a higher than market price or saying I can sell it in a week when it's literally going to take you five months. And so setting expectations in real estate, who likes surprises, right? So that's the right approach you're taking from the jump with your clients. Well, I think we've walked, I'm sure you have too, walked away from listings that we thought from listing a home, we thought would be overpriced. There's, there's no reason to take it. And like we all say, it's better to be the second agent than the first agent. Because by the time the second per, you're the second agent, you'll have sellers will likely be in a better place to be more realistic. Yeah, no, and, and even I've talked many buyers out of buying things just because I, I thought they were overpriced or just something flawed about the product or the location. And you have to give your clients the right advice. And if you do, they'll keep coming back. Well, that's why you know, my business is almost 100% referral-based or repeat clients because you want to make sure that, like you said, talking about a buying a house is probably something that's hard to do as an agent, but in the long run, it's going to pay off because they're going to truly trust you and send their friends your way. Yeah. So let's move into the final phase of this podcast in terms of the lifestyle in Seattle. Maybe you can take our listeners through for you. What part of the lifestyle do you really enjoy? Like, what's a perfect day in the life of Evan Wyman sure. in Seattle? And what I also want to know personally, like, is the coffee really that good in Seattle? Why are there so many coffee well, shops? Being from Seattle, I hate to say, I rarely drink coffee. Yeah, I hear it's pretty good, but they are everywhere, as you may guess. And they're everywhere in most places, but they're really everywhere in Seattle. But the best thing about Seattle for me is water. I may be misquoting the stat, but I read somewhere a long time ago that Seattle has the most boats per capita of any city in the country, which doesn't surprise me. So we have Lake Washington. In the summer, it is packed when the sun's out, which is July, August, September, and now. It is packed with ski boats. There are a couple of different bays. One's called Andrews Bay, and there's one Juanita Bay where people anchor, and there's music playing, and people are drinking, and the kids are playing and jumping in the water. The experience of being on the water is what I love most about Seattle. You know, you can go from Lake Washington out through the city on the Montlake Cut over to the locks, 
and be in saltwater and Puget Sound and go salmon fishing. You can take your boat up north to Canada or the San Juans. I mean, it's just the water activity and that is just, the boating is amazing. I went to school in Boulder, I think I mentioned earlier. And the one thing I missed, Boulder is a great town, I love it, is the water. My favorite time of the year was when I'm sitting on the boat and the sun's going down and I've got a beer in my hand and it's just 85 degrees out and the water is 70. And it's just relaxing, calming, and amazing. Other part about Seattle is it has, you know, you can be skiing in 45 minutes. So we've got mountains, we've got water, mountain biking, great city with great restaurants. And you've got ferries you can take to Bainbridge Island, which is a 60-minute ferry ride. So if you're coming to visit Seattle, go to the Space Needle, take a ferry ride, try to get out on the water. That's really good perspective. So many people visit a city, like even New York, and we're surrounded by water. And Manhattan's an island. And once you grow up and spend time around the coast, which is why so many people <laughs> live on the coast and everywhere in the world, you just can't be away from the water. And I always tell people, even that are visiting Manhattan, get on a boat ride and go around the island on a boat. There's mm -hmm. nothing like it. Yeah. There's something calming about it. It's just peaceful and calming and relaxing to me, and I think to most. Yeah. So what's the difference in lifestyle? So I imagine in the urban markets in Seattle, it's more like what you would find in New York or Chicago or Boston. And out in the suburban markets, it's more outdoorsy type of stuff. Yeah. As you, as you go east, you're definitely more, there's more space, more parks, yeah, outdoorsy mountain biking, hiking. So that's where you go. If you're in the city or even on the east side, you're going you're to drive east most likely to the mountains and you're going to bike, you're going to hike. Yeah, a lot more play fields and parks. There's just more space as you get outside the city. So what's the winter like? I mean, I obviously know there's a lot of cloud and rain and everything, but is there snow? Like, how cold does it get in January in Seattle? Yeah, it, it probably snows once a year, and it snows probably a couple inches, and the city shuts down because no one knows how to drive in the snow in Seattle. There's a lot of hills, which makes it less safe. But uh, it's mostly 42 and drizzly in the winter. The summer last, I think I was... It was 85 on Sunday in Seattle. Summer, we have a great fall, which feels like summer. And July 5th, they say, is when the, the sun comes out in Seattle. And it stays out normally again through the end of October. You know, it sounds a little bit like Chicago has great summers and it's got really cold winters. You know, <laughs> So everyone really just enjoys the summers. They make sure they're outside every day because they know that they'll be inside in the winter. Right. We're, and we're not that cold in the winter like Chicago, obviously. We'll probably get a 10-inch snowstorm every two, three years. But it's really a dusting or two and in the 40s. It's not amazing, but that's why people leave for the weekends and fly to Palm Springs or Sun Valley or, or wherever. Yeah, that's a good point. And I know a lot of those tech guys have homes down in Southern California, too. And they go down on the weekends because it's an hour flight. It's easy. Easy to get to. Yeah, I think... Palm Springs, Santa Barbara, even San Francisco or L.A. or Phoenix, too. Good weekend retreats during the winter. Yeah. No, so it's some part of living in a certain area is just access to other areas. And Seattle definitely has got access to a lot of exciting destinations. Right. Yeah, I forgot to mention, too, which I think is interesting or fun about Seattle, is that we're only five hours from Whistler. So three hours to Vancouver. And then Whistler is obviously a great world-renowned ski area. So a lot of folks will drive up there in the winter and, and get some skiing in as well. Yeah, that's nice to have access to Canada in three-hour drive. We have some of that with New York. I mean, we could drive to Montreal in maybe six or seven hours from New York. So 
In closing, we have a lot of real estate agents that listen to the podcast and a lot of them that are aspire to get into, you know, everyone wants to get into the luxury end of the market. What advice would you give someone who's getting into this at at a young age that wants to break into the luxury market at some point? I think what's most important for someone new that wants to get into this market, the luxury market, is to realize that it takes time. You're not going to be able to walk in there and compete with people who have been doing this for 20 plus years for a five, three, four, five million dollar house. So, for example, what I did again was start when I was 25 and I grew with my clients. I started their first home and they had their first kid and they moved up and then they got a great job and they moved up and moved again. Then they left and they came back. And over time, the first time buyers will turn into luxury buyers, most likely. So it just takes time. But I would say also, like I mentioned earlier, is knowing the market, acting, you know, you can fake your way through some stuff. Just act as if, right? Go through all the luxury homes for sale at the broker's opens. And so when someone talks to you about the high-end market, you're educated and you sound like you know what you're talking about. You know, fake it till you make it. So I think, again, one, it takes time. And two, know the market, learn the market. Or align yourself with the team. Myself. You can have a team, obviously, but line yourself with someone who sells in that market and learn from them. There are plenty of luxury realtors that want good team members to help them out. And that's a great way to soak in the knowledge of the high-end market. So it's important to know how to deal with the high-end clients, how to speak to them. And they're mostly just great people, right? But you have to know what you're talking about and you have to know the market know how transactions work. So when you're a member of that team, make sure you absorb what the what the team lead, how they manage their clients, how they work with clients. So you know when you are ready to take that step to work with high-end clients, you have the knowledge and the experience and the training to do so. Yeah, that's really good advice. Someone came to me a few months ago and young person just got into the business, very green and they told me that their goal was to be like the top agent in New York within two years. And I broke it down for them and explained how that just was not going to happen. And you need to be patient and you need to, you can't read a book about this business. You got to do the deals and earn your stripes and you can accelerate your progress, but you know, you just, you can't be unrealistic. So if you're setting expectations with clients, you have to start first and set expectations with yourself and then come up with a plan and figure out those milestones and hit them one at a time. But you know, you can't get in front of a really high-end client one-on-one flying solo until you're ready, because if you're not ready, they're going to let you know, and then they won't want to work with you. No, no, no. I guess if someone approaches that new agent for a high-end listing, go to someone who's a high-end producer and say, let's team up on this together. It's my first high-end appointment. Let's go in there together yeah. and do it together. That's really good advice. Which makes sense. Yeah, that's really good. And, then, and also, too, I think what's important to tell a young agent who's asking those questions is from my experience owning a brokerage, the agents who do the deals that are kind of mid-range deals, they make a lot of money because they do a lot more deals generally. So you don't need to sell a $10 million house there aren't a lot of those to sell around Seattle. You can sell $20 million homes, right? And there's a lot, there are a lot more clients walking around in their probably their peer group that are going to be buying, you know, more affordable houses. And just that's a great way to, to make a lot of money. Because again, owning a brokerage, those are the ones who do a lot of deals. Yeah, that you want to do the the bread and butter or the meat and potatoes business and the 
The high-end deal is usually uh, the, the frosting on the cake, but you can't set your whole business plan against that because if you don't hit that deal, then you're going to not be in this business. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we do most of our deals are two and a half to three, which is a great price point. But we throw in some six million dollar deals along the way, and you know that's great. That's like you said, the cherry on top. Yeah, that's great. That's great advice. So, Evan, we really thank you today for your time and for being on Luxury on Location. It's a very informative conversation. I think our listeners are going to really enjoy it and take some nuggets away. And if anybody listening is interested in Seattle real estate market, whether professionally or you're thinking about moving there and buying real estate, you can contact Evan Wyman and his team and also for Sun Valley as well. As Evan mentioned, he's got a team there as well. And he's a valued member of the Private Client Network. So thank you, Evan. Oh, thank you for having me. It was, it was fun. I enjoyed it. A sincere thank you to Evan Wyman for being our featured guest on our sixth episode of the second season of Luxury on Location. That was a great conversation, which we sincerely hope our listeners enjoyed. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. We understand there are a multitude of podcasts out there, so we appreciate that you chose Luxury on Location for your listening pleasure. We hope to see you back for our next episode when Kevin Snedden will be speaking with another one of our private client network partners and discussing their luxury market. In the meantime, please check out the Private Client Network at Compass, your nationwide resource for luxury real estate. We operate in virtually every luxury real estate market in the country. You can find us at theprivateclientnetwork.com or on Instagram at Private Client Network. Until next time.